essentially, you know, Canada is, is a young country founded in 1867, but we are actually a very old, established and sophisticated democracy, a federal democracy as well, with uh, provincial governments and a national government and regulatory systems that are designed to make energy development in Canada responsive to the desires and needs of Canadians. You are listening to the Siemens Energy Podcast Series. The energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide. And at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Now, here's your moderator, Amy Pemple. Canada has set a target to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 40 to 45 percent from 2005 levels by 2030 and has set a commitment to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Canada is a resource-rich country with a unique mix of energy sources that vary from province to province, which poses challenges when it comes to decarbonizing energy. Today, we welcome Jacob Irving, President, Energy Council of Canada, and Arna Walschlegel, Managing Director, Siemens Energy Canada, on what Canada must do to accelerate the energy transition and what examples from other countries that it can look to as a model. I'm going to start with you, Jacob. If you don't mind, could you share the Energy Council's role, a bit about your background and your work leading up to your current role with the Energy Council? Sure thing, Amy, and uh, thanks again to Siemens Energy for pulling this together. I often say there are a few people who I enjoy having high-level energy conversations with more than uh, than Arnie, and uh, <laughs> and and I think you know, it, was, it was his idea to basically record one of our conversations. So uh, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, so a little bit of background where where I come from as as the president of the Energy Council of Canada. I often say um, my career I think was divided uh, equally between hydrocarbons and hydropower. And so, and in Canada, I just happen to think those are the two major energy pillars, two of the things that make us different, make us unique and distinct on the world stage. So the first half of my career, I spent a, a good amount of time in Fort McMurray working on the oil sands. And then the second half of my career, I became the president of the Canadian Hydropower Association. So um, I have some views from, the, from both sectors, from the hydrocarbon and the uh, electricity sectors. And I sort of say I'm one part hydrocarbon, one part hydropower, uh, all parts energy. And um, I also often like to say, you know, my title, the president of the Energy Council of Canada, the two words I take very seriously are energy and Canada. And uh, that's how I like to engage in conversations with Arnie. And he often brings the, the international perspective my way, which I greatly appreciate. So looking forward to the chat. Yeah, well, the cooperation between the two of you is certainly something uh, that you both value, I can I can tell. So, Arna, can you please share your background in the energy industry for the audience, please? Yeah, thank you, Amy. I'd like to. So I worked in the energy industry for more than 20 years now for, like, in, in different roles. I'm a mechanical engineer by degree. I started out as a field service engineer working on power plants around the globe. And then I changed into a more of a customer facing role and then later into management in my career at Siemens Energy. I've worked out of Germany, out of the US and since 2015 out of Canada. And for the record, I know Jake. I'm also a member of the Energy Council of Canada. And I always enjoyed the discussion with Jake around 
how can we move energy forward in Canada? Thank you. Now, Jacob, I'm going to ask you this question. What does the landscape of energy look like in Canada? I understand that Canada is the sixth largest energy producer in the world and growing at a rate faster than the average globally. Can you share what makes Canada unique? You know, I've had time to think about this and through conversations with people like Arnie, I come down to a fairly simple statement. I am of the firm belief that Canada is a responsible energy producer because it's a responsive energy producer. And especially at times like these, I think it is really important to think about the way we do it. We make energy in Canada. I think that's one of the reasons why we are successful and growing. Essentially, you know, Canada is, is a young country founded in 1867, but we are actually a very old, established and sophisticated democracy, a federal democracy as well with uh, provincial governments and a national government and regulatory systems that are designed to make energy development in Canada responsive to the desires and needs of Canadians through our political process, through our regulatory process, etc. And I really think that that makes us sharp and responsive to uh, the demands of our customers, both domestically within Canada and internationally. So I really, the more I think about, I mean, we are blessed with natural resources. There's no doubt about it in Canada. You know, we're the second largest landmass on planet Earth. So it stands to reason that we've got some significant natural resources underfoot. But for Canada, it's never, that's never been the main thing. For us, it is the way we develop our energy and it's the expertise that we bring to it. And it's because we have to be so responsive to so many different kinds of stakeholders um, in so many different ways that we remain sharp and that we remain on the leading edge of development of energy. I'm convinced of that, especially nowadays. Yeah. And Arna, from your perspective, uh, what makes Canada attractive for energy projects? I mean, I think Jacob mentioned that the way we develop or the way Canada develops is a, is a, certainly a key to that. But I'm sure when you're out there, Siemens has a big presence in Canada. When you're out there talking with customers and looking at new projects, what makes Canada attractive for that kind of investment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jacob mentioned something earlier there as well. So my global experience that I bring to the table sometimes uh, uh, contributes here. So, and and my answer is probably also very similar to what what Jacob alluded to. So Canada is a very resource-rich country as well. So it has commodities that that are really needed by the world and um, Canada has the potential to export export such commodities to really help with the the energy transition. So I see, I guess, mostly also a unified position about climate leadership that comes from the Canadian government and also from industry stakeholders. We sometimes have some disagreements, for instance, on what the path forward might be. But I, I think overall, there's a there's a unified position that we need to address climate change. So uh, Canada, the Canadian government, for instance, made some very strong announcements and, and statements around, for instance, policy direction when it comes, for instance, to carbon tax, so $170 carbon tax per ton by 2030 is one example, clean fuel standards, for instance. And then we see also um, significant tax incentives for for new energy projects. I think there's also, there are other reasons here. Um, The workforce of Canada is always highly qualified, uh, well-trained and educated. Canada has a high standard when it comes to employment laws and and, and wages. And lastly, I like to mention that um, Canada is also building on a growing immigration and its population is very diverse. 
it has strong international connections and is also a safe place. And, and that's really enriching uh, our industry and energy, but also society as a whole. That's interesting. And you touched on this, uh, and I'll ask this to both of you. I mean, Canada has set targets to reduce greenhouse gas by 40 to 45 percent from 2005 levels by 2030 and to be completely net zero by 2050. What does Canada need to get there? Jacob, I'll start with you and then we'll go to Arna. Well, it's a great question. I mean, because we just got uh, an update on how we're going to get there by the federal government. And it's we're, I think everyone's still digesting a little bit. I should probably mention that my answers in these conversations, some of them are probably my own personal opinions and takes. I haven't necessarily had the chance to poll and get the, the total position <laughs> of the organization. So please uh, don't hold me too strongly to some of uh, the opinions I'm going to venture. But I mean, what I noticed is that uh, there is a strong shift in focusing on on transportation in Canada from the federal government, which I found very interesting because, and it, and it speaks to actually our greenhouse gas emissions profile. That's another unique thing about Canada that bears mentioning. Most countries around the world, the number one source of greenhouse gases by a country mile is the electricity sector for, all, for, for the vast majority of countries around the world from essentially having more emitting electricity, uh, coal-fired generation, um, other hydrocarbon-fired generations. In Canada, we are different in that it's ranked somewhere around fourth or fifth as a source of generation. And that speaks to how clean our electricity system is. We have a roughly 80%, a little bit more than 80% non-emitting electricity system. And that makes us very different compared to many countries around the world. And so what it means is, okay, so what are our high emitting sectors in Canada then? If electricity isn't the highest, then what is? Transportation? And our overall oil and gas producing uh, industry are basically almost tied for first place, sort of 27% last I checked for the oil and gas industry, about 25% for transportation. So those are the two really big areas uh, where Canada can look to to try and get emissions reductions. And a lot of the, the conversation over the past number of years is really focused on the oil and gas industry. And rightfully so in many ways. But this signaled a shift toward the transportation sector, which is very interesting because what we've also heard from our natural resources minister is a desire to increase oil production in Canada by about 200,000 barrels a day and to increase natural gas by about 100,000 barrels a day equivalent. And again, that is to supply, to help supply the world. Uh, given this current conflict and the foreseeable future. So it's there, there, we have some great opportunities in transportation to reduce our, our emissions. And um, we'll be excited to watch that and to participate in that as the Energy Council of Canada. So it sounds like Canada is very adept at adapting to these types of um, offerings, whether it's natural gas or whatever the source might be. So Arna, I'm going to ask you, what do you see as the biggest obstacle to getting to these targets? I mean, we've got you've got buy-in from Canada, certainly, on the different technologies. Is it technology that's the issue? We say technology is not the issue. We are a technology energy company. We, we often see the mindset is probably more of an issue. So we have the technologies today. We talk about that. I think our challenge will be to, to commercialize these technologies so we can deploy them. And they, the affordability is probably the, uh, the concern that most people see, um, especially when we talk about the newer technologies around hydrogen and carbon capture. Right there. Today, probably cost prohibitive. And I think it's our role as a technology energy company to, to 
to scale it up, to, to bring the innovations into these technology developments so we can ultimately reduce the cost and deploy these technologies more widely. So another constraint I see is also around um, codes and standards when it comes, for instance, to permitting. If we talk about new technologies, we often run into challenges on how can the existing infrastructure system maybe handle hydrogen, right? So for example, we take the pipeline network, steel pipelines that transport natural gas today, and there's limitations on, for instance, how much, how much hydrogen you can inject into these pipelines. And uh, to change these requirements to allow maybe to more for more hydrogen uh, to be injected, that, that's a lengthy process, and um, that's that's what we that's what that's what we need to work on if we want to enable these green and green energy production projects, for instance. I mean, maybe on that, I, I recently spoke to to a CEO who's also a member of the Code Commission that looks at these codes and standards that we build projects to, and often. There's a lack in the in the codes that are available and what we're building today and what we need to build today. So, and if we have a lack of 10, 15 years, then it's very difficult to actually de deploy these newer technologies because it it limits a project to clear an FID, a final investment decision, and that's what investors investors want to see that all the hurdles are clear. Is the business case working? Is it technically plausible and feasible? And is there any permitting risk? And once we once we cross all these hurdles, then we get to an FID, and then we can we are able to actually deploy a project, build a, a plant, and, and 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 operate it for the long term. Jacob, what about hydrogen? Uh, we talked a little bit about it in the just recently on this conversation. But tell me, is that the path to achieve net zero? Is hydrogen in the in the forecast? You know, someone once put it to me that, you know, the way we've got to look at uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the energy sector is, a, uh, is to not necessarily look for silver bullets, but to use silver buckshot. Uh, yeah, I like meaning, that. You know, meaning that we, we have to try everything. But uh, I would have to say that hydrogen would definitely be one of the, the larger pieces of buckshot that you'd, <laughs> you'd want to concentrate on. It has a lot of promise. And I mean, Canada is already uh, a top 10 producer of hydrogen, not necessarily to uh, for the new hydrogen economy that's, that's being envisioned, but for other industrial processes and the like. But what it means is that we have history and ability in this sector. We know what hydrogen is uh, and we, uh, we know how to produce it. And we are also blessed with a lot of given hydrocarbon infrastructure that can be converted into hydrogen infrastructure, as Arnie is alluding to. But also, uh, as, as Arnie cautions, as good is that, you know, you, you can't do that overnight. You have to have the right policy framework in place to, to make that happen. You have to have the right incentives and uh, industry has to see a clear path forward to do that. But the good news is, is that it's there. It's just how serious are all of us about bringing on a hydrogen economy? And it's interesting because I go back to, there's a, a Canadian um, energy writer, thinker, Peter Tazakian, who I, I admire. And he'd put it in terms of, it was, he was talking about the grid and Thomas Edison and talking that uh, basically Edison's view was that the grid worked backward from the light bulb in the sense that, you know, everybody wanted electric light bulbs in their barns and in their houses. And the grid was built up around the largest machine ever in the history of man was built so that people could all have light bulbs. And the same idea with internal combustion engine cars. Uh, everyone wanted one of those over a horse and carriage. 
And all of a sudden, petroleum filling stations sprouted up all over the place because everybody wanted this. The trick with hydrogen is to get everybody to want it and to know what it is and what it can do. And the tricky part that I find in the conversation right now is that, um, and this this is the way it is with a lot of energy conversation right now, is that it's a lot of top-down conversation. It's a lot of people who are really knowledgeable in the energy sector who know what needs to be done and that can be done to reduce emissions, but it's not necessarily coming up from the average consumer. And that's the connection we need to breach because we have the capacity, we have the ability. It's just we need the market signals from people and we need um, the regulatory processes to link that together. But uh, like Arnie says, I mean, in terms of raw materials, ability, infrastructure, we've got that. And we've got the expertise and the ability to, be, to bring more. And the one thing that I, I would like to add just from our previous questions, is I'd like to say also, too, that the fact that Canada can attract a company like Siemens Energy to come and do business here and be as robust as they are uh, speaks well, again, to the way that we do things. We have an independent judiciary in Canada. Uh, we have a robust democracy. We like to think that we are a good home for experts from around the world to come and do business. And they do. And the fact that we are able to tap, quite honestly, the expertise of a Siemens energy in Canada strengthens us, makes us better. And I'm convinced just as Arnie is that the expertise isn't the problem. The natural resources isn't the problem. It's the demand from consumers and the alignment of policy that, that we've got to work on. And I think that speaks to the fact that Siemens Energy and Canada as a, as a country are both committed to exploring new opportunities and new technologies and new ways to address the energy transition and to take it on head on. Arna, can you tell us a little bit about um, natural gas and the role of the bridge you see it going into new greener technologies along the way? Because like Jacob said, there's no silver bullet. There has to be a transition. There has to be a path forward. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, be glad to. So it's probably important to remember as we are trying to decarbonize our energy systems that um, you know this 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 renewable generation is building up and and we can't do a shift to away from natural gas overnight. So we actually at Siemens Energy believe that there's a role to play for natural gas in the uh, in the interim. And it's really to um, firming up the renewable resources um, as we as we grow that more and as we develop storage. So, especially in the last few weeks with uh, the conflicts that arise between the Ukraine and Russia, the question about energy security was becoming more of a priority, more of a discussion. And the topic here around what is the role of natural gas and can natural gas be procured from other places than and Russia is 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 on top of many energy leaders. So I was just at the Sierra Energy Conference in uh, Houston, and that was one of the top discussions that was uh, taking place in, in almost every session. It's like, how do we make sure we ensure energy security? So Siemens Energy is, of course, as a technology provider involved um, when it comes to the natural gas industry. If from, from upstream, midstream, and downstream, like we are active on from the well all the way through pipelines in, in, in refineries, we have technologies that is deployed in LNG facilities, for instance. And LNG facilities, liquefied natural gas, that means natural gas is cooled down at an industrial scale, and that's using compression technology, et cetera. And, and 
for us, that is a pathway to decarbonization when we consider that natural gas can actually displace dirtier coal-fired generation elsewhere in the world. So definitely a, um, a very important topic right now that's on many people's minds. Of course, we, we want to do this. Um, we have technologies also. I, I want to say also when it comes to natural gas and the technology that we use, for instance, in gas-fired uh, power plants, there's a lot, this is very mature technology. And there's a lot of efficiency improvements that get developed year after year. And by implementing those efficiency improvements into that fleet, we can actually achieve a very significant reduction in CO2 emissions for our customers. So maybe I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you know, when you talk about liquefied natural gas or LNG exports from Canada, uh, there's a lot of exciting uh, possibilities. And I think, but not, it's not exciting, but important possibilities nowadays. Um, I think one of the questions is, is, you know, should the world be deprived of Canada's natural gas? We have an abundance and an ability to export to those who need both off our West Coast and our East Coast, and in particular into Europe now. There are serious energy issues uh, facing Europe and the rest of the world based on the current conflict. And um, us Canadians have the technical ability to assist. Our natural gas, in many ways, you can say, is making it to Europe already in the sense that we have a very integrated natural gas infrastructure system in, in North America. So natural gas is finding its way to Europe from American LNG ports, and Canadian molecules, I'm sure, are finding their way into that through our, our big integrated system. And in many ways, American volumes that are being sent to Europe are being backstopped by Canadian volumes as well. So we are assisting. We are getting more of our natural gas. But the question is, can we be more purposeful in that? And can Canada, should Canada, build some of its own East Coast terminals to send our LNG more directly to Europe? I think that conversation has been reawakened. It's a, it's alive. Our federal government is interested, and you know if you want a good partner for LNG, Europe could do uh, far worse than Canada. With our energy system, one of the biggest components of greenhouse gases to LNG is the electricity that's used to liquefy it. Well, in Canada, with an eighty percent non-emitting electricity system, we have the opportunity to have the least emitting LNG in the world. And I think that's a quality that would be valued highly by European clients, not just from a security point of view, but from an environmental point of view as well. So stay tuned. This conversation, I think, is going to get uh, more interesting as time goes on. Jacob, how does nuclear factor into Canada's decarbonization goals? It's taking on a pretty important role. We saw a major announcement of uh, the province of Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario, and New Brunswick decided, uh, working together to uh, introduce small modular reactors into the Canadian energy system. Each of those provinces uh, taking a somewhat different but cooperative approaches in, in making that happen, looking at both uh, grid-connected SMRs and non-grid-connected SMRs. And in the Canadian context, it's exciting because one of our issues is diesel-fired generation across Canada's north and particularly with Indigenous communities. To have electricity in northern Canada where you're not connected to the grid, you rely on diesel-fired generation. And everyone knows that that's a highly emitting uh, source of electricity. And it's also uh, sometimes, uh, it, 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 uh, it produces local air popul uh, um, uh, pollution issues. 
And so uh, there's a strong desire uh, to get to energy that's controlled for the community by the community. Um, and there's an interesting opportunity in remote Indigenous communities where SMRs could uh, be hosted by those communities, own, run, and operated by those communities. So they can achieve a little bit more energy independence and security, but also know that, they're, that they have uh, zero emissions electricity as part of it. So that's something that's really exciting. You know, Canada is the sixth largest uranium exporter in the world, and it's about 20% of our electricity almost comes from nuclear power. A lot of people don't know that we're a nuclear leader and that uh, we have experience in this field and a proven track record. So um, I think if anybody's going to be able to make a go of SMRs, it's going to be Canada. And uh, watch out, everybody. That's what I would say. <laughs> Arna? Yeah, from, from my side, I mean, nuclear energy is uh, certainly a way to to help with uh, green greenhouse gas emission uh, targets that we have. And Canada has an existing fleet of nuclear power plants operating, actually Siemens Energy. Canada is, uh, is a, has a team that supports these customers in Ontario and New Brunswick as we maintain these, these power plants over the years. And uh, there's a lot of work underway. And as Jake said, also the uh, SMR technology developments, they, they are quite exciting because that's a new generation of, of nuclear reactors that operate a lot safer and a lot more environmentally friendly. And this is something we feel is important for us as a technology company. Maybe we don't get involved in the um, react on the reactor side, but we are definitely involved on, on everything around the plant. And that includes, for instance, the downstream side when we convert the high the high temperature steam into into uh, into electricity right through our steam turbine and generating uh, generator technology so for us definitely a a, a very interesting field with uh, we see the opportunity to to make a difference when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions and Thank i'll you. say and i'll say too i mean we're going to need the uh, global expertise of companies like siemens energy to realize the opportunity very intricate field nuclear power as we all know um, it's a truly international energy choice and I think we're going to be able to, again, claim a bit of a leadership position in that regard as Canadians, but we're going to need the help of, of others. And so uh, it should be another exciting opportunity to, um, to learn both ways. Well, let's, um, and then I'm going to ask this of both of you, because I'd be interested in both of your perspectives, and that is the theme of partnerships within the industry. I think those are very important. I think Siemens Energy has developed partnerships in other parts of the world, and it involves uh, government agencies in, in the public sector, the private sector. All, how important is that to navigating through this transition? First, I'm going to ask Arno, from a Siemens Energy perspective, what type of partnerships are you finding valuable that could be implemented in Canada as well? Yeah, and, and this is maybe also a lessons learned that we have in, from other regions. Maybe I just can reflect on Siemens Energy. We are active in over 90 countries and uh, the energy transition plays out differently in, in the different regions and maybe at the different uh, at different times. So there's a lot of lessons learned that we, we see from different regions that we can maybe apply one of the things we we clearly understand is uh, there's a there's a massive investment about 50 trillion dollars uh, coming uh, into this industry that's helping transition from the old to the new energy uh, industry. And now the question is how do we do this? There's the existing players. No one can do this alone and by themselves. We need to do this in a partnership. We need to we need to collaborate. And this is private industry, governments all stakeholders, investors need to come together 
to make uh, make the transition work. We have, uh, for instance, some 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 examples here that we've seen also in when it comes to developing cleaner or new energy technology developments. One project there is called the Havo Uni project in Chile, where we are leveraging the vast wind resources, we're capturing those through our wind turbine technology in Siemens Camesa, and then we're converting that renewable energy and water into hydrogen. And the hydrogen is then further processed with a CO2 source that we're capturing from the air. And so we create e-fuels. And this is a project that that's not one customer that said, I'm, I'm going to do this project. It's really a consortium of, um, of, of interested parties involving governments, uh, industry, off-takers, investors that come together and say, we, we want this project to go. And basically, the idea here is to produce um, over, I think, 500 million liters of e-gasoline by 2026. And that's exported actually to Germany for um, for the transport sector. And that's um, that's the kind of project, in this case, a lighthouse project, that we probably see more and more in the world. And for, for, for us to demonstrate that this is possible and we can learn from these projects. And then after that, we can also, of course, improve our cost position on these projects, CAPEX and OPEX, and then uh, make them available for the industry. Jacob, do you want to add anything there? You know, when you mention the word partnership in the Canadian context, I can't help but think about Indigenous energy across Canada. And in fact, Energy Council of Canada, we've got a great study called Indigenous Energy Across Canada that basically looks at success stories east-west of increased improved partnerships between the energy industry and Indigenous people. And examples like the one Arnie speaks of from Chile, we need those examples coming to Canada to help us con- are, are along the road of continuous improvement, figure out how things are do- being done in other parts of the world that are successful and use those best practices here at home. That's why we benefit from companies like Siemens Energy doing business here. But also we have lessons to share outward uh, from our own uh, energy uh, development. And I really do think it, the indigenous energy sector is one that's worth looking at that where the world can really learn a lot from Canada. We want to learn from the world as well. But, there, you know, we, we've come in a couple generations. We've come from a place, quite honestly, uh, sometimes of acrimony with indigenous people on resource development in Canada. The relationship was not always perfect, was not always necessarily good. And a few generations later, again, because we are an honestly responsive country, we're seeing Indigenous uh, people lead in the energy industry, taking equity partnerships in projects, promoting projects, bringing projects to the table. It's an incredible amount of change in a short period of time. And again, uh, the only thing I can chalk that up to is that we have an honestly responsive framework for developing energy in Canada. It's not always easy. It's not always comfortable. Sometimes we don't always get the results we want, but in the end, we keep moving forward because we. this is the way we do things in our country. And we're, I think as the Energy Council of Canada, we're excited to try and pull all those stories together and share them out and be help be a model for responsible development around the world. That's terrific. And also, I'd like to broaden that topic just a little bit and, and say that you've said that we have lessons to both learn and teach when it comes to the full environmental, social, and economic dimensions of energy development. And that's not only within the industry, but with the general public, I would assume. How are you approaching that in Canada, the education for the general public? 
I mean, for Energy Council of Canada, we have a number of initiatives. We have a Young Energy Professionals Network. We have our Energy Person of the Year Award. We, we have Canada's Energy Story. But most recently, we've developed a new platform called the North American International Outreach Program. And this is where we are encouraging the Canadian industry to tell Canada's energy story more strongly and more directly outside our borders. I'll say that traditionally, we've kind of leaned heavily on our governments and our ministers to tell our energy story outside our borders. And they always do a great job of it. And the more they can do that, the better. But there's an opportunity for the industry to step up and start doing this as well. Obviously, you know, the joke isn't funny if no one hears it. And us us Canadians, I think sometimes our fault is, is that we, we do a very good job at home. We, we see a lot of progress, a lot of real demonstrable change. You know, we used to not have a national carbon price. We now do. Not everybody knows that necessarily. We know it in Canada, but not everybody else knows that around the world. I mean, for example, I mean, of the top 10 oil producing countries around the world, we are the only one that has a national carbon price. These are some lessons that we can share with others. But again, you know, these things we come up with, it's because we, we learn from others who bring their best practices to, to our shores. And so I think that we, we have to keep up uh, reaching out. We have to keep telling our story. It's not always in us as Canadians to, to brag about what we're good at. We got to get over that a little bit. And I think that we also have to uh, be careful when we talk about um, energy literacy and improving people's understanding of, of energy. I am always careful to try and enter the conversation, not the idea that, you know, we need to teach people about energy and that if they only knew more about us, they'd like us better. Um, and those kinds of traps. We have to be very careful to know what people expect from energy, what they want from it, and, uh, and then communicate how we're delivering it to them. Try and be more bottom-up than top-down. That always works for us as Canadians. It's just sometimes we get a little lost on that front. But uh, with folks like, like Arna and, and Siemens helping us out, we're doing, we're doing a much better job of, of getting the message out and, and sharing some of the positivity of Canadian energy development in a world that I think really needs it these days. So may I add something there, Amy, of real course. quick? So this is, uh, so when we come together as energy leaders, we talk about um, the, the importance of the issues. And there's really a, a, a mindset of uh, finding a solution to these topics. Advocacy on, on energy is, um, is, is one thing, literacy, like understanding these issues. And also, why do we see, for instance, an opposition in certain areas? And what do we need to do about it? And also, now when it comes to sustainability and ESG, I find that energy companies, especially in Canada, they're taking a leading role here. Everyone has made their announcements on when to become carbon neutral or how to, how to support carbon neutrality. Um, net zero targets are announced. We also have a lot of really now it's not just the announcements it's really going into the detail as well in terms of understanding where are your emissions your scope one scope two scope three emissions and i also noticed that companies organizations have changed now we see esg officers um, sustainability officers and those are the people that are attending the uh, the conferences and they are part of of really the uh, the, the C level of an organization right now, and they are helping to drive company strategies as we as we transition the energy industry, and that's quite encouraging. And we as Siemens Energy have the same. We have issued sustainability reports where we're not just announcing our ambitions; we are also really uh, showing our results, right? We and we're measuring them by really 
scope one, scope two, scope three on the environmental sites. We measure diversity targets right now, and we and and we make them visible. And we're starting to measure these KPIs similar to how we report on financial performance, for instance, for in, <clears throat> for our company. And I think that's important for investors, and that's important for our customers. Customers will in the future have to make purchase decisions, and they will look at that. And this is a this is a maybe a a key change to what we had in the past. Excellent. Jacob, did you want to add any final thoughts before I get to our last question? I actually, you know, I, I left something hang out there and I think I need to pull it together. Um, I was talking about, you know, how we have, you know, I was talking about how we have an independent judiciary in Canada and, and you know, and that's great and many democracies do. But I mean, I mean, here's where it matters. And, you know, Arnie and I were talking about this before um, recent developments but, you know, the fact that Canada develops energy responsibly within a responsible democratic framework has real value. But you know, how do you communicate that? How, how do you make people understand what that, what that means? I think current events demonstrate that. I mean, we in Canada value a rules-based international order. And we have an independent judiciary that enforces that, and we have a democratic form of government that allows it. Now, that means that in Canada, you know, um, not every energy project comes to full fruition all the time, unfortunately. And that is much to the consternation of, of investors and developers who don't quite get to see through the project that they wanted to build. But at the same time, we have a, a framework where you can pick up your socks and try again. You can go back to the drawing board and do something different. And you can make your investments in a secure setting. You have recourse to the courts if you're if you're not pleased with the, the way things have happened. And you have a reasonable assurance of being treated fairly. And this is incredibly important. And I've I've drawn it back to actually my own history as a Canadian. I say, you know, the Energy Council of Canada, Energy in Canada. In my lifetime, when I was younger in high school, we were deciding whether or not we were going to enter into a free trade agreement with the United States. And I remember how passionate that debate was in Canada. And I was actually on the side of let's not. I bought into the fears. I bought into the fears that, you know, oh, the United States may somehow uh, subsume us if, if we got too close through a trade agreement. This was about our national identity and these sorts of things. I can tell you that there's nothing I'm more pleased to be more wrong about in my entire life than that. We've seen it since. We have a North American free trade agreement, and it's grown. And in fact, what has Canada seen? We have seen growth and development, wealth and prosperity through that. And at first, we were skeptical. We, were, we had nationalist tendencies, I would call it. But really, all that we were afraid the United States was maybe trying to, to come and take us over. That was a real campaign line back in those days. And meanwhile, we, we step back and we say, no, actually, all we were trying to do was trying to encourage each other to play along with each other better. And that's what we did. And I look at Canada now in 2022, and by being more focused on a rules-based free trade agreement, I mean... Canada dominates popular music in the United States now. Uh, right? I mean, we, do, we, we don't have national identity issues. In fact, by, by entering into a rules-based free trade way of doing things, we have flourished. We have developed a customer service-based way of doing things. 
as I've recently mentioned in an op-ed, we do not use our natural resources as some kind of imperial cudgel in Canada. We are a customer service-based developer who is responsive to all kinds of different stakeholders. And that should really matter these days. And there should be value uh, um, ascribed to that. And I think that we're in a great position as a country right now for, for our true value benefit to be better seen than ever before. Excellent. And when speaking of popular music from Canada, I must admit I'm a Michael Bublé fan. I think he's a great ambassador for Canada. <laughs> so and that's just one. Yeah. That's just one a, artist. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to get now to the question that we ask everyone. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking this is going to be very interesting from both of you. Uh, what do you believe about energy that most or some would disagree with? Arna, I'll start with you this time. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I'm not sure that I have really the best answer <laughs> for it. Um, but maybe I go back to to something I tried to say earlier mm-hmm. when it comes to the energy transition, right? So we, we talk about a lot about all these different systems that could play a role here and, and the technologies that, that might help make a difference here. And we also debate over how it's being rolled out and how fast maybe, for instance, some of the adoptions will take place. When I look at the zero emission vehicles, for instance, how fast are they coming? And are we going to have more decentralized energy versus more centralized energy? What what kind of fuels will flow through pipelines? And, and you know, we, we don't really know that yet. And there's a lot of speculation there. So if sometimes I wonder that if, if we take a look at this again in 20 years, would we see something maybe one pathway, one certain technology that made made a breakthrough that we didn't foresee today. And like just looking back and how, how quickly we get smartphones and what smartphones do today, I wonder if something very similar could happen to the energy industry. And I couldn't tell you which one that is and, and which way it's going, but maybe it's a little different than we are foreseeing today. Jacob? Yeah, I would agree. There are some potential leapfrog opportunities out there, but it's almost like there's so many of them, it's hard to know which one to bank on. Uh, If I knew, I'd be investing right now and not talking to you guys. (laughs) (laughs) But so, but that's kind of the, that's the the, the plus and minus of it is that um, there isn't necessarily um, a clear uh, path toward uh, what our low emissions future is going to be. But the good news is that there are so many different options. And uh, again, having a, a company like Siemens Energy that's involved in all of it, uh, working within our borders is very helpful to us because, again, it's perfect. I mean, we, 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 we offer some lessons to you guys and you offer some lessons to us. And together, we're going to find the right path and we're going to find uh, the right options. But the good news is that Canada, I mean, we do it all when it comes to energy. And so any direction that the world goes into, uh, we'll be able to follow. And in some places, we're going to have a chance to lead as well. So we're very, we're positioned quite nicely in terms of, you know, what do I think that might um, be different from others? I think that Canada is still well positioned to be able to produce hydrocarbons in a world where emissions need to be reduced. That's a potentially controversial um, uh, position because I mean, a lot of people are really see are going to a bit of an extreme. And I understand where they're saying, you know, we've got to stop hydrocarbon production. Uh, in order to reduce, realize our greenhouse gas emissions. You know, the, the debate's getting extra um, contentious these days. But what I would say in Canada is that we have look at our track record. 
we have a proven track record of being able to produce these sources of energy with decreasing greenhouse gas emissions attached. Now, a lot of people might say, not quick enough, got to do it faster, got to do it better. And I think most of our companies would say, yeah, we're working on it. We're there, we're with you. But if you look at, you know, from the oil sands perspective, the original uh, difficulty with that was trying to separate the oil from the sand or, or the bitumen from the sand and then turning the bitumen to synthetic crude oil. And nobody thought we could do it. And meanwhile, over a couple generations of cooperation between industry, provincial government and federal government, we figured out how to do it in Canada. And now we are taking that same kind of approach and trying to figure out how to reduce its emissions profile. So my view is give us a bit of time. And, you know, a carbon capture sequestration, it's easy to forget. We are leaders in Canada. We have one of the first functioning projects in the world um, and one of the top five largest. I hold out some hope for for that as uh, as a technology. We have we have passive carbon capture uh, happening in Canada. We carbon engineering out of British Columbia has a, a working project where they're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it back underground. So I I think that's probably the the somewhat controversial thing that I would add is that I think there's still some runway left for us as Canadians to be able to reduce the emissions profile of our hydrocarbons and be the best hydrocarbon producers in the world. In many ways, I think we already are, but we'll do better. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. I think you've both given us a lot to think about, a lot to chew on, and it's been fascinating conversation, and I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at siemens-energy.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials. <laughs>